6th anniversary of the Reformation. And uh, we've been looking at these words, these sola or solus words. We looked at uh, sola scriptura, that through scripture alone, there was this return to the scriptures that really started the Reformation. We looked at sola fide, through faith alone, faith in Christ alone, not by works, but through faith. And we looked at grace alone. That's the grace of God, that undeserved favor of God, that leaning in of God that allows us to be saved. And this week, uh, last week we learned about uh, being a neighbor, a reformation of the heart. We had our associate superintendent from our conference, Pat Stark, with us, and he talked about a reformation of the heart that would lead you to love your neighbor. Reach out to your neighbor. Get to know the names of your neighbor. I've got to confess, I only know a couple of my neighbor's names. That was not fun to do for me last week. Um, it's really pushed me out. Think about my neighbors. Think about the, the soccer people that I'm around. Who, how, how well am I getting to know them, taking opportunities to share Jesus in, in word and in deed with, with my neighbors, my community? This week we look at solus Christus, that it is through Christ alone. Through Christ alone that we are saved. This is a scandalous claim. That it's only through faith in the person of Jesus Christ that a person can be saved. It's a scandalous claim. I want to unpack this a little bit this morning, but I want to talk a little bit at first about um, superstition. And I want to confess a little bit that uh, I am like uh, the infamous manager Michael Scott of Dunder Mifflin from uh, the television show The Office. I'm not superstitious, but I'm just a little-stitious. See, I played uh, baseball my whole life. I was a baseball player, and baseball is full of superstition. Baseball is insanely full of superstition. You've got things like you don't dare step on the foul line when you're going on and off the field. It's bad luck. You just don't do it. You've got the crazy phenomenon of, of, of the uh, rally cap, the rally cap. And as a Chicago Cubs fan, we had the infamous curse of the billy goat that we finally broke 108 years later. Because we were cursed, we couldn't win. I remember my high school baseball coach, he was very superstitious. He wasn't just a little stitious. He would coach third base and you would see him over there and he would find a spot on the ground. And after each pitch, he would tap that spot. And if something bad happened, he had to find a new spot. Because that spot didn't work. So he'd find a new spot. And oh, if something good happened, if he kicked the base the right way, oh, he was going to that every time. Something good, we're on, we're good. Because clearly that was connected to success at the plate. Clearly. I remember times uh, in the summer where we'd be playing a lot of games and he'd, uh, he'd kind of sit in the dugout in this uh, orange lawn chair that he had. And he would finally let somebody else coach third base. And let me tell you, if we got on a, on a streak and we started winning games, he did not return to coaching third base. He sat in that lawn chair in the same spot in the dugout and let the other guy coach third base until we lost. And then he'd switch it up. I remember on a tournament, God bless his, little, his daughter. His daughter would come and she'd be our little bat girl. And there were tournaments where he wouldn't let her change her clothes because we were on a winning streak. I don't know how he got away with this. I don't know how he communicated that this was just what we had to do. But he was superstitious to the max. He talked a lot about the baseball gods, that we had to play the game the right way. We had to respect the game to appease the baseball gods so that the baseball gods would smile upon us and we would continue to win. And i got to tell you, we were a pretty successful high school baseball team. So maybe there was something to all of this. So it seemed. 
a little silly, but it kind of starts to get in your head that like, hey, we're doing these things and it seems to be working, so keep doing those things. Come on, you all have done this from time to time. Little prayers about a parking space, the holiday seasons are coming up. Oh, Jesus, I've been extra good. Give me that extra close parking space. I know the mall is packed, and I don't want to drive around too much. Oh, Jesus provided me that parking space. Did he now? Did he? Of all the things Jesus is concerned about in the world, that parking space, we're all, maybe not superstitious, but we're all a little stitious. We're all a little stitious. It turns out these struggles, these these things are nothing new under the sun for people of faith. It turns out, uh, reading about Martin Luther, the, the one who really kicked off the Reformation, that there was a time in his life, a time in his life where he thought he was going to die and his first instinct was to cry out, Mary, help me! A man of deep faith, deep Christian faith, cried out to Mother Mary, help me! Years later, he was caught in a storm. This is a famous story of Martin Luther's. Caught in a thunderstorm, lightning struck nearby, and his first inclination was to cry out, Save me, Saint Anne, and I will become a monk. Have you done this before? Just get me through this one, and I'll do whatever you want. Maybe you're not superstitious, but we're a little stitious. A little stitious. Yeah, there you go. There's, there's our good friend Martin Luther crying out. Uh, it turns out these struggles are nothing new under the sun. I, I thought of this story, and I immediately thought of the very um, sanctified movie, Talladega Nights. You're supposed to laugh at that because it's hardly sanctified. But Will Ferrell, in one of my favorite scenes, Will Ferrell is professional race car driver Ricky Bobby. Oh, where's Will Ferrell? There he is. There's my guy, Will Ferrell. And he gets in this crash. His car is upside down. You might remember the scene. He's in this crash. They come to pull him out of the crash. He's convinced he's on fire, and he's not. And he starts frantically running around the, uh, the track. I wanted to show the scene, but he gets down to his underwear, and I wasn't sure all y'all would be okay with that. But he's running around the track, convinced he's on fire, and he cries out, Help me! Save me! And then he begins the litany of people he wants to call out to. Help me, Jesus! Help me, Jewish God! Help me, Allah! Help me, Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise, use your witchcraft on me to get the fire off me. And finally, help me, Oprah Winfrey. He's covering all his bases. Because you can never be sure. You need help. Again, you might not be superstitious, but I think we're all a little stitious. Cover your bases, call out, see who might be there in that moment to help you in that trial. Who might be there to save you? Who might be there to provide what you need? And sometimes we find ourselves going to all of these different things, these different things that, like Martin Luther, at some point we might have to confess, have become idols. Have become idols. They, 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 they're there just a little bit in front of Jesus. But we might go to those things first, before Jesus. I want us to look this morning at John chapter 1. I want us to look at the person of John the Baptist as a sort of model for us, a sort of model for us of how we can get away from this kind of superstitious faith or stitious faith, just a little stitious, and get back to the heart of following Jesus, Christ alone, 
is where we should go first. Christ alone is where salvation is found. Listen to the story of John. I was going to read the whole first chapter, and I want to encourage you over the next week maybe to look at the whole first chapter of John and look at the character, the person of John the Baptist. How he consistently points away from himself and points to Jesus. But what I want to do this morning is just focus on uh, one of the, the stories here. And it starts in verse 35. It starts in verse 35. Where it says, the next day John was there again. Where is there? He's at the Jordan. He's baptizing. Crowds and crowds of people are coming to John for baptism. Tons of people. They want to know what this guy in the wilderness is up to. He's interesting. Is he a prophet? Is he the Messiah? Who is this guy? And they're coming to John by the droves, just people coming to John to be baptized in the Jordan. So the next day, John is there again with two of his disciples. He even had disciples. He had a following. He had people coming and saying, we think you're important enough to follow you, John. When he saw Jesus passing by, verse 36, he said, look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them and said, what do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying. They spent the day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Earlier on in the story, we have the same thing in, in verse 29, which is earlier on. And Jesus said, or John, again, he sees Jesus coming and says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He continues on in verse 30. This is the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. That's a weird thing to say. But he's acknowledging who Jesus is, that Jesus was actually this person standing in front of them all, was before him, before the beginning of all things. This is a strange thing to confess when you see a man on the side of the river and John says, look at that guy, look, there he is, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. This is John's confession John models what it looks like for us to recognize the saving one, to recognize that Jesus is the saving one. He is the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sins of the world. He is the chosen one. It's Jesus. It's him. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. To share what you see. To, so to recognize and then to share with others what you see and then to invite. Come and see for yourself. That's what Andrew did. So Jesus says, come and see, come follow. Where am I staying? Come follow, come and see, come and see. It's modeled right there in scripture, this noticing, recognizing who Jesus is, sharing that with others, and then saying, come and see. One commentator suggested that if John, John the Baptist, were to have a Facebook profile picture, which is always a funny thing to think about, as if, like, if Facebook existed back then, I, it's a strange thing. But if John had a Facebook profile picture, his picture would be, now I don't, this is the only picture I could really find of John the Baptist. I don't kind of like the like weird angle of his arm. But it would be him pointing to Jesus, away from himself and pointing to Jesus. That's 
who John the Baptist was. It pointed to Jesus. And many believe, as I was reading about this text, trying to understand salvation through Christ alone, many believe that John the Baptist is our best example of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. To point away from us and point to Jesus consistently in every area of our life. It's about Jesus. Jesus did it. Jesus did it. This is Jesus. He gets the credit. He gets the credit. You have to think about this because John the Baptist, as I said, he could have, I, I, in fact, had he been living today, he could have been one of these uh, influential thought personalities, you know, intellectual personalities. He, he could have been one of these guru pastors who said, like, I've got a pretty sweet following. I've got a great platform going for me. I'm a pretty important guy. He could have said, like, yeah, Jesus is great. I mean, Jesus, I'm going to build my platform on Jesus, but I'm a pretty, look at the crowds. Look at the people following me. You know, Jesus, yes, okay, I'll give Jesus the credit, but I'm pretty awesome too. Look what I have done. Look how many I've baptized. Heck, I baptized Jesus. Who gets to say that? He could have been that kind of guy. He could have said, yeah, oh, yeah, faith in Jesus alone, but come on, a little bit of faith in me too. A little bit of faith in this baptism thing I've been doing. That's a pretty sweet deal. He, he could have put his faith in other things. He could have put his faith. He was kind of this wilderness wanderer guy living, living off the land. You know, in, in terms of purity, like biblical purity and obedience to the scriptures, he was knocking it out of the park. He was beating those Pharisees guys. Those guys who were like, we're the best. We're following all the letter of the law. He's like, yeah, you got nothing on me living out here in the wilderness pure as can be. He could have put his faith in that. He could have told people, live like that. Do as I do. Be like me. Yeah, it's, oh yeah, faith in Jesus. Yeah, 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 faith in Jesus, but be like me. Follow this lifestyle I've created. He could have also, as a good Jew, his dad was a priest. You know the story? We're going to tell the story in Advent of his, ja his dad, Zechariah, being a priest. He could have put his faith in the temple. He could have said, the temple is the place to put your faith. After all, that's where God dwells. God is there. My dad had this interaction with an angel. That's what it's all about. So yeah, Jesus is cool. But there's this temple thing, y'all. Don't forget it. But for some reason, John has this revelation from God. And for John, the only thing that matters is Jesus Christ. And he says, no, 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 it's not about me. I'm not even worthy to tie his sandals. It's him. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. Aren't you worried, John, about losing some of your disciples, some of your followers to this guy? No, no, no. It's not about me. It's about Jesus. He's happy to lose his life eventually, pointing to Jesus. The story is that he's in prison, and he's kind of worried that maybe... Maybe Jesus isn't the Messiah, and he goes and he sends his own disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one? Did I put my faith in the wrong one? And Jesus simply tells them, go and tell John what you see. Go and tell John the miracles that you see, that the blind have received sight, the lame can walk. Go and tell him what you see, and John knows that that's what the Messiah would do when he came to the earth. And so John knows he put his faith, his trust in the right person, Christ alone. Jesus alone has the ability to save. And so John, he has all of these 
things that he could have put faith in, and he puts faith in this man. Yes, this carpenter's son from a backwater town, Nazareth, he puts faith in him. And you have to understand that this at the time and continues to be a scandalous proclamation. That this guy who lived 2,000 years ago was the incarnate word of God. It's scandalous. And so when people ask, you expect me to believe that? You expect me to believe that story? It's a legitimate question. It's okay. We have to get up in arms about that. It's a legitimate question. It was a question at the time that Jesus walked the earth as well. People were asking. The Pharisees were asking. Some of Jesus' own followers were asking. As I said, John the Baptist asked, are you really the one? Are you really the guy? Because we're trying to put our faith in you, put our trust in you, and you alone, are you really the guy? Christ alone. Christ alone. That's what we're proclaiming this morning, that Jesus Christ is the one and only place where salvation is found. A scandalous proclamation, but what we believe and proclaim to be the truth. Christ alone. John the Baptist came saying, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And the Bible continues to say that the biblical proclamation is that in Jesus Christ alone, salvation is found. That every knee will bow to Jesus And I know today, living in 2017, skeptics and cynics will say, is it really that exclusive? Are you really saying, Christian church, that it's that exclusive? And as much as I want to say, oh, maybe, uh," that's what we're saying. We're saying it's that exclusive. It's what we have. We have Jesus, the testimony of 2,000 years of Christians laying their lives down because they believe that Jesus Christ and Christ alone is the way to the Father. It's an amazing thing, and it's scandalous. And so I think for us, what we have to wrestle with today is how are we, given the challenges of our day, where, where people don't want to believe the exclusivity of Jesus. I don't know if you... If you run in those circles where people say, like, really, is it that exclusive? Is it just Jesus, or is it there's all these other paths that lead to heaven, and Jesus is just one of them? I think you've heard those conversations, and so we're up against a lot of that today in our culture, and we're up against what it means then to live as Christ-centered people so that others, like modeling John the Baptist, so that others will say, what is up with you? See, see I think for years we, we've kind of, instead kind of tried to cajole, threaten, manipulate, or woo people into salvation with nice messages. But today we we are challenged to live in such a way that our our lives and our fingers, like John the Baptist, point to Jesus and say, I want to show you who he is. I want you to understand, not just in words, not just in me trying to intellectually argue with you, but I you I want to show you who Jesus is, what he's done in my life. So so when we have recognized Jesus, look, there he is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, then we also need to be able to tell people and then say, come and see for yourself. It's that come and see for yourself part that I think we need to work on. Come and see for yourself. It, It turns out our job, our job is to be ambassadors for Christ. 
to represent him. And that means that we don't have to always just argue for him, but it means that we have to be pointing to him and saying, that's who I represent, and our lives ought to represent Jesus. We're in a tough place because as Gandhi famously said, I don't know if you remember this quote or have seen this quote, he says, I like your Christ, but I don't like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. I fear that that's the times we're living in. That Jesus, Jesus is contagious. Jesus is infectious. People love Jesus. Jesus is attractive. The kids that I've worked with, even the ones who have said like, you know, I'm not that interested in church. They still love Jesus because Jesus is an amazing, unreal, adventurous. But what about the Christians? What about us? I wonder if Jesus modeled healing people and said, you can too. You know these weird passages where Jesus says, you will do greater things than I did? And you're like, yeah, right. What if he meant it? What if that's the call for us? You know, Jesus ate meals. We did a whole series on not like me where Jesus hung out with people who, who he shouldn't have been hanging out with. And then says, Go and do likewise. Go and, go and hang out with those kind of people. And, and his followers continue to hang out with those kind of people. And we're kind of like, yeah, that's a little scary. I mean, I, it blows my mind when I think of Jesus hanging out with prostitutes. It blows my mind. But he did it. He hung out with despised tax collectors working for the government. He had in his own little posse of 12, he had guys that wanted to overthrow the Romans. He had zealots. And he had guys working for the Romans, tax collectors. Imagine those political conversations around Jesus' table. And yet they were on this mission together saying, you know what, we'll set that all aside because it's Jesus. Life is about new life found in Jesus Christ and him alone. So set all that aside and, and give all we have to Jesus. What would it look like if we lived like that today? See, we're seeing droves of young people leaving the church, and I want to take this opportunity this morning. Uh, we, we are part of a cohort that, that I've mentioned from time to time called Growing Young. Uh, Fuller Youth Institute in Pasadena did this study, and, and they studied the, that, and they realized that almost half of our young people are walking away from church after they graduate high school. And they think that's kind of a conservative estimate. It could be higher than half. And I think that's pretty true. I look at my Facebook feed and the kids that I've worked with over the last 12 years in youth ministry, and I think a lot of them still love Jesus. They're cool with Jesus. But they're not so sure about the Christians. Wrap your mind around that. They're not so sure about church people, but they're cool with Jesus. And some of them, they're, they're, not, they're not giving up on Jesus, but they're giving up on this version of Christianity that we've given them. In this book, Growing Young, the researchers observe some off-ramps. I want to share a couple of these things with you. A couple of these things that get in the way of us proclaiming loudly that it's Jesus and Jesus alone. And that's what we're about as a church is Jesus and Jesus alone. And all these other things are distractions. And let's get back to Jesus and Jesus alone. One young person said this. Here's the Growing Young stuff. She said, the central message of the gospel, they tried to get a sense of what do these people believe about church that's making them say, it's not that important for me to participate in a community of faith, but Jesus is okay. She said, the central message of the gospel is that someone is always there for you, and there's many different paths you can take, but ultimately they all lead to the same thing, which is heaven. 
I feel like there's many good things you can do and many bad things you can do, but no matter what, you're just always going to be forgiven. Even if you think something is unforgivable, God is like this magic person who can always cure it and can make it okay. See, she's really superstitious, not just a little stitious. And there's always going to be a happy place, even when you're in your darkest of darks. There's always going to be a light that is there for you. Now, reading this in this book and thinking about this, I have to confess that I know a lot of people who think this way about God. And that oftentimes, we accept it and say, it's fine. It's okay. And I want to say, if you're there, if maybe you find yourself resonating with some of this, I'm not trying to beat you up. Because the reality is, as, as we study these things and look at these things, reality is that we as Christians, have passed this faith on to our kids. It didn't spring up from nowhere. That's the scariest part. That this faith that these kids are catching is being given to them by somebody. But it's good enough. Because we've been willing to kind of woo people or we've been willing to kind of like, okay, we'll just want you in the door. We just want you to believe a little bit. And it doesn't matter if you believe all the right stuff, but just believe this stuff and it's good enough. And so sociologists and those studying this have called this, what they've called this is moralistic therapeutic deism. Where there is a God, that's the deist part. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm cool with there being a God. Even if you want to call him Jesus, I'm cool with that. But what does this God want from you? Well, he wants me to be good. That's the moral part. And he wants, he's there for me when I need him. Like a therapist. That's the therapeutic part. And it just becomes... It just becomes, again, another way of covering our bases, reaching out to whoever might offer help whenever, and God's just another lifeline, just another lifeline to reach out for, but not the one and only Savior of the world through Jesus Christ. So we have a problem on our hands with our kids, and we need to figure out how to communicate the truth that faith is found in Christ alone to our kids. And we have an amazing opportunity to do that. As grandparents, as parents, as spiritual mothers and fathers, we have an opportunity to speak the truth of Jesus into our kids, into their lives, to teach them what it means to follow Jesus. We have that opportunity. We have that opportunity to teach them not another just superstitious faith that, you know, Jesus is cool and everything, and he's really great when you, need, when you have a problem. That's the best. That's when you really need Jesus. Otherwise, you don't need him so much. See, I wonder if that's the faith. That, that's kind of the faith I caught as a kid. Jesus is cool and everything, but just kind of push him over here until you really need him. Then call out for Jesus. Try all the other stuff first. Exhaust all your other resources first. And then when you've got nothing else to go to, then go to Jesus. That's the same thing as that superstitious faith. Save me, St. Anne. Save me, Mary. Help me, Oprah Winfrey. Oh, yeah, Jesus. Oh, my gosh, almost forgot it. Is that the faith we're passing on to the next generation? The other side of the coin is that there's a number of students who, who talk about having a faith that is nothing more than sin management, behaviorism. Do this, don't do that. Don't be a part of that thing, do be a part of this thing. I can identify with that faith, and for a long time that faith did help me. It helped me stay out of trouble at least. But it wasn't about, the, the motivation wasn't because I wanted to be connected to the Savior of the world. 
and point others towards the Savior of the world. It was so little Chad could stay out of some trouble. And again, it was kind of like, I can do these things. I can save myself. Until you get in a mess and you go, oh, but then I also need Jesus. He's nice too. How do we get Jesus back at the center of all we do? The interesting thing about this growing young study, the thing that I want to hold up as we kind of conclude and say, what does this mean for us to be a type of community that holds Jesus high, is that they said kids, like I said before, young people today are attracted to Jesus. Jesus, the message of Jesus, the person of Jesus in the Gospels is, is very attractive. Young people today are attracted to Jesus, so we have to make sure that we lift Jesus up. And we should be doing that anyway, right? That should be, like John the Baptist, what our lives are about. Jesus. It's about Jesus. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Look, there He is. Here He is. Come and see. Come and see. It's not about me. It's not about getting more followers. It's not about getting more friends. It's about Jesus. Come and find out about Jesus. So I want to challenge us this morning as we think about the young people we know, as we think about our co-workers, as we think about our neighbors, how are we living in such a way, speaking in such a way, acting in such a way that our whole lives point to Jesus? Where we can be like John the Baptist, pointing to Jesus and saying, it's not about all this other stuff, it's about Jesus. It's not about political beliefs, it's about Jesus. It's not about whether you go to the right denomination, the wrong denomination, the church that believes this thing or that thing. It's about Jesus. Jesus. Have we lost sight of this? I believe, not speaking just as see me covenant church, I believe the church, when I look at these studies and they break my hearts for the next generation, I believe we have in part lost sight of the truth that Jesus alone saves. It's all about Jesus. How do we get back to that place? That's the challenge for us. That's the challenge for us. Have you thought about taking the opportunity to pour into the lives of our young ones? As they, as, as they run out of here, I think we're all excited to see them, but we have opportunities to pour into their lives. They're here. How will you walk alongside our young ones? Even as you're in the nursery, we, we could use some more nursery workers. This isn't just a call to now, hey, here's, here's the bait and switch. Come volunteer. But we need people to love our kids in Jesus' name. Families in this church, we're getting a lot more young families, and they need people who have walked the Christian faith to come alongside them and help them point their kids to Jesus. Who among us can do that? We had a dedication today, and we make these promises at baptisms and dedication that we emphatically will help these parents care for these children. What are we willing to do to to make good on that promise. Or you're like, ah, somebody will do it. Pastor Matt will do it. That's why we hired that guy, right? You got it, buddy. Who's going to do it? It's us. We're the ones. And this is just talking about the ones who are already here that we get to point to Jesus. Not even thinking of the huge opportunity we have in our community to point to Jesus in all we do, with all we are, with all we have. Salvation is found in Christ alone. That's a scandalous phrase to proclaim in 2017, but it's what we proclaim. 
It's what we believe to be true. And if we believe it to be true, we must live in such a way that this scandalous proclamation puts on flesh. And people see it. And they say, tell me about that. And we say, come on, I want to tell you about it. Come and see. Come and see what it looks like to live in the way of Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? God, it's true we need your Spirit's help that we might live as your ambassadors, pointing people to Jesus, pointing people to Jesus in everything we do. God, we confess as we come to the table that there are times where we put our faith in other things. God, sometimes we put our faith in in our abilities, the abilities that you gave us, the abilities to navigate this world, God. Sometimes we put our faith in our, our resources, our wealth, our money. God, sometimes it's just easier, we confess, to take care of things without turning to you. God, help us to look to you first, to recognize that you and you alone is the place where salvation is found, where you and you alone can set us free, can save us. God, we thank you for the gift of your son. We pray this all in his powerful name, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's fitting this morning that we would come to the table. You think of John's proclamation, behold, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And I hope you've made the connection or you can make the connection to this language of the Lamb of God. Because Jesus' disciples, they gathered at a Passover celebration where they told the story of the Lamb that was, that was the, the blood was on the doors and the angel of the Lord passed over and they were saved by the blood of the Lamb. And now John the Baptist would say and would look at a person at Jesus and say, this is the Lamb of God who once and for all takes away the sins of the world. We remember that story each time we come to this table. We remember that Jesus paid it all for you, for me, for us, for the salvation of the whole world. We remember that story as we come to the table. So this morning, come to this sacred table not because you must, but because you may. Come to testify not that you are righteous, but that you sincerely love our Lord Jesus Christ and desire to be his true disciples. Come not because you're strong, but because you are weak. Not because you have a claim on the grace of God, but because in your frailty and sin you stand in constant need of God's mercy and help. Come not to express an opinion, but to seek God's presence and pray for the Holy Spirit. Hear the words of our Lord Jesus Christ as they are delivered by the Apostle Paul. He says, I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night that he was betrayed took a loaf of bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you, we 
proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Amen. This morning you'll be receiving communion by coming forward by a method known as intinction that we've been doing for a few months here. You'll take a piece of bread and uh, rip it off of the loaf and dip it into the cup. Uh, We'll have two stations at the front, a station in the back. If you could come down the middle aisles and return out the sides, that would be great. There will also be on this side a uh, a gluten-free station for anyone who needs gluten-free bread. And for anyone who is unable to come forward, I will have uh, the elements to walk around and find you. Please raise your hand and help me find you. I do not want to miss anyone. I'd like to invite the servers to come forward at this time. Would you pray with me? Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, to you be praise and honor for giving yourself, shedding your blood, and letting your body be broken for us, so that we might have forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Bless God this bread which we together eat, this cup which we together drink. Let us through this bread and this cup become partakers of our Savior, the Lamb of God. God, unite us with one another, with all your saints in heaven and on earth. Consecrate us, make us holy, both body and soul, to be living, acceptable offerings to you. So that in word and deed, we may continually praise and glorify your holy name, now and forever. Amen. The table is ready. Come as you are ready.